Hello, everyone. My name is J.B. Hickson with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky nestled in the tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you for joining us today. It is Friday, June 9th, 2023. And before I bring on our uh, very special guest, I can't wait to introduce you to him. Most of you probably know him already, but I want to take a moment selfishly to give a big shout out to my to my dad. Today is my dad's 81st birthday, and uh, he is in better shape than I am, and he always likes to brag about uh, whipping up on uh, 30-somethings on the pickleball court, So, uh, and I believe it because he's in great shape. But anyway, happy birthday, Peepaw. I know he's listening. He loves to listen to our podcast and just wants you to know I love you and appreciate you. Uh, so uh, a couple quick announcements uh, before we bring on our guest today. David McIlvaney is going to be joining us to talk about kind of the world uh, financial situation, and particularly the United States uh, financial situation. Are we uh, teetering on the brink? Is financial collapse imminent? Kind of give us uh, his uh, very highly valued uh, input on this topic. But uh, it's been a great week as we wrap up the week here at NBW Ministries. Uh, uh, we've had uh, several great programs I want to encourage you to check out. Of course, our regular Tuesday night prophecy night from Denver. Uh, and that uh, was a great uh, uh, session as we talked about setting the stage psychologically and what's going on with AI and mind control. Uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, Wednesday was our weekly world events update with Randy. That's out there for you to watch or listen to. Uh, actually, I think that one's just an audio-only podcast. And then uh, yesterday, we did Countdown to the Rapture with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Brad Maston, and uh, talked about a lot of great uh, stage-setting events that seem to be indicating we're getting closer on God's prophetic calendar. Of course, we can't set a date, but certainly want to heed the words of our Lord and and uh, setting our minds on uh, the the setting of the stage and see what's, what's happening out there, the signs of the times. But uh, today, it's my great honor to... Uh, to introduce uh, David McIlvaney. He's the CEO of McIlvaney Financial Companies, and um, he's a very well-known. Uh, many of you probably have known him or followed him. He's a featured speaker on national television programs like CNBC, Fox News, Fox Business, Bloomberg, radio programs, uh, and he's also spoken at financial seminars and conferences around the world, basically analyzing major events and their impact on the global economy and financial markets. He can be heard weekly on his market commentary with world leaders, bankers, economists, and renowned investors. He's got over 25 years of involvement in the wealth management industry. He's the author of the book, Intentional Legacy. He's a graduate of Biola University and, um, he is, of course, a licensed investment advisor, uh, Series 65. If you want to know more about uh, David McIlvaney, you can go to McIlvaney.com. That's M-C-A-L-V-A-N-Y, M-C-A-L-V-A-N-Y.com. But I suspect that most of the NBW Ministries uh, constituency is quite familiar uh, with McIlvaney Wealth Management and, uh, and uh, his... Uh, reputation. So David, so glad to have you. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. JB, it's great to be with you. I'm guessing that some of uh, your listeners may know my father, Don McIlvaney. He has written the McIlvaney Intelligence Advisor for about 45 years. And between he and my mother, they started our family business, which is now 51 years old. So we're into the five decade range, um, focused on precious metals as one business and then asset management on the other. Um, so yeah, I've been around a little while, but you know, my, my family's cared a lot about the educational side of, of understanding the times. And so we spend a lot of time talking, um, with folks just like you, how do we understand what's going on in the world, in the economy, 
public policy, international relations, how does this tie into uh, a larger worldview? So thanks for having me on. I hopefully, hopefully we can bring some insight into the, the economy in particular and the financial world and the financial markets as well. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, your dad, I've followed him for years and followed that uh, newsletter. And uh, so uh, tell him hello. If you talk to him again, tell him how much we appreciate his uh, uh, legacy through the years. And he's about the same age as my dad. Well, I found out before we started the interview. And so, uh, uh, you know, that's uh, I guess so we're, we must be about the same age, although you look like you're much, much younger and much better shape. But uh, but anyway, uh, so, yeah, I, you know, I I've obviously followed um uh, world events for many years now, uh, written several books on the subject and, and through the lens of Bible prophecy and, and how, uh, you know, the stage might be being set for the coming one world government. And of course, a big part of that is a global financial control. We know from scripture that uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to preside over a year of, uh, uh, over seven years of a total uh, tyrannical global control that will involve, uh, you know, the economy and, and buying and selling. And so that's why a lot of us kind of like to keep one eye on the the financial situation. But of course, you know, I, I'm not an expert. And so I can speculate and make do my best to make sense of uh, current events and news items. But uh, I really wanted to have you on to kind of give us more of a studied professional opinion. And, you know, I'm not sure where this is going to go. We have not scripted this. Uh, you know, you you and I may not necessarily agree on some of the minor details, but I highly value your opinion. So uh, so let's dive in. I guess the first question is, uh, you know, from your vantage point, do you feel like that we are on the verge of some kind of a repeat of 08, some kind of financial collapse? Yeah, that's a great question. So you know, when, when we look at the financial markets, uh, we see them through sort of two different vantage points. One is looking at economic statistics, and the other is looking at sort of how the system of, of finance, how how the that market is functioning. Is it functioning well or not well? The economy is really where you see activity occur. 70% of our economy is based on consumption. And so this deals with personal choices and preferences and how people spend money and do they go out and are they making their bills and do they have enough money to, to pay for things? And of course, inflation and factors like that, you can feel that the consumer feels inflation. Um, so there's there's one conversation to be had, which is strictly economic in nature. And then to your question about a repeat of 08 and 09, that has to do more with the structure of the financial markets in particular. And so there is the question of when we look at assets, how are they valued? Are they appropriately valued? Are they overvalued or undervalued? It, it deals with how much speculation is in the market. What is what is the use of leverage in, in a particular point in time? How many people are borrowing from the house? You've heard of margin before. This is this is in this particular case. If you have a portfolio and you decide you want to double the size of your portfolio by borrowing money from the house. To then speculate even more on the on the themes that you think will work, that kind of leverage and speculation that deals specifically with the structure of the financial market. So we could have two separate conversations: one about economic health and vitality, and the other about the structure of the markets, which deals with derivatives and leverage, and how people are placing their bets in exchange traded products like ETFs. Uh, and and again, that's really where we began to see frailties. Uh, emerge in the 0809 period is in the structure of finance 
way too much leverage and all of a sudden financial products, which are blowing up. And there was a consequence because of those financial products blowing up within the financial markets into the economy. They're separate, but they're also related. Okay. So, so they do feed on each other. So let's talk about the economy first, because, uh, you know, we're all egocentric. We like to know, uh, you know, how much my next meal out is going to cost. Um, how healthy is our the consumer side right now? Yeah. So if you look back at, say, the last 50 years, we've we've seen sort of a transformation of the economy. I think you could say that at one point we had embraced capitalism. And we kind of think of the U.S. or the West more broadly, including Europe, as as capitalist in nature, as 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 opposed to socialist or communist. These are these are different economic models. But sometime in the last fifty years, and I think the pivot really was around 1971. We can get back to that in a minute. But we began to see this shift towards creditism, where economic growth is no longer tied specifically to how much activity is occurring. But economic growth is now dependent on how much debt is increasing each year. We've created an economic model which is dependent on an increase in debt. So that some people have said that if our debt levels are not increasing, net of inflation by 2% a year, we will be in recession. I'm not saying that this is a healthy state of affairs. But when you're talking about the economy, we're, we're, talk, we're talking about something that shifted fundamentally. And, and, and we now have this, this strange addiction to and, and reliance and dependence on debt. The government does, corporations do, individuals do. So household debt increased significantly into the 2008-2009 timeframe. Right now, what we see is not so much household debt screaming to the highest levels imaginable, but corporate debt and, and very specifically government debt, not only in the United States, but globally. So government debt has filled the gap of the household and the consumer who has been more restrained. Okay? And a part of the reason that the consumer is more restrained is because we're dealing with higher levels of inflation. We simply can't be extravagant in our spending if we're worried about making sure we can pay the mortgage and our, our typical bills and not running out of money before we run out of month. Yeah. So, so, so the government debt, uh, depending on how you track it, uh, conventionally is said to be 32 trillion, I think something like that. Um, but that's not to say when you're talking about the household debt, that's not to say that we don't have a personal debt problem, right? I mean, I, some of the stats I've seen is, you know, unsecured credit card debt, uh, uh, mortgages, uh, and and car loans, things like that are still, you know, pretty high, right? Yeah, no, very true. We we have a we have a significant issue with household debt. The the bigger issue is is that government debt has just gone on a rampage, and and it was already at high levels. 10 years ago, um, 22, 23 trillion. Now we're at 32 trillion. We've transposed those numbers in roughly a decade. Congressional Budget Office pencils out $50 trillion within the next decade. So we, we will add close to 20 trillion over the next decade, bringing us to over $50 trillion. And this becomes very important because the more debt you have, unless you are holding interest rates at a, at a, at a less than natural level, 
you're talking about an inability to even pay interest on the national debt from current tax revenue. So it has a huge implication because now all of a sudden you're talking about overspending and us having to make up for it as citizens because we we can we can really anticipate a massive increase in inflation uh, on the one hand and and also in taxation on the other. Yeah, and even at that, is there is there any way in your in your view we're ever going to be able to to get back even, or, or are we past the point of no return? Yeah, there was a guy at the Congressional Budget Office about a decade ago, and he did the math on that. I think, I think if I recall, it was double-digit economic growth for the next 50 years. And so we could grow our way out of it. But of course, we haven't had double-digit economic growth in any year in the last 50 years. <laughs> so, right, yeah, so that's how- So to assume that we have uninterrupted year-on-year growth of 50, it, so that- Theoretically, is possible. The math yeah. works, but it's not probable. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, uh, I could, you know, play in the NBA. So, I mean, I suppose anything's possible. But, uh, <laughs> but is it likely? That's the question. Um, now, yeah. you mentioned uh, the turning point of of seventy one. Uh, obviously, that's the year that we went off the gold standard. Is that is that kind of part of that significant turning point? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, there's some really critical dates if you're thinking about our monetary history, and just to keep those in mind, and and we don't have to to explore all of them today. But 1922, 1932, 1944, and 1971 are probably the most critical years in U.S. dollar history. So if you want to look and say, how did we get here? How since the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913? Have we, and of course their primary mandate is to keep the dollar stable. How have we lost 97% of the value of our dollar since the creation of the Federal Reserve? Yeah, yeah. In opposition so, to their mandates. Those are yeah. the four dates that tie to that. So I know, uh, of course, 44 was Bretton Woods, 71, the gold standard. Uh, not as familiar with the other two. So if you could kind of give us a rundown, but I did want to interject that, um, you know, I've done a lot of research on the Federal Reserve. In fact, I, I had the opportunity to go to uh, Jekyll Island and uh, visit the the site of the uh, the uh, Federal Reserve establishment where the, they met, and um, and it was just a really kind of a fascinating thing to think about the significance of that. And I, you know, not to get into conspiracies, but I think it was it was not like most things, not about what it was about. I think there was a nefarious agenda behind it uh, that that really was sprinkled throughout the early part of the 20th century with a lot of the nefarious uh, deeds of the Rockefellers and some of those with taking over the big industries like big pharma, big education, um, manufacturing, and of course, the financial system. But in any event, yeah, give us the rundown just uh, briefly of of those benchmark dates that you talked about. Yeah, nefarious is what we find in in the human heart. I mean, on, on an unredeemed basis, you can expect people to act in a very self interested way, and even if that is is to the detriment of other people. So it should come as no surprise mm -hmm. that actions are taken by powerful people that are very self interested and cost us as a society something great. Nineteen twenty two is the Conference of Genoa, and this is where central bankers from around the world gathered and basically said, look, we don't have to move all our gold deposits around. They were, of course, on the gold standard. All of them were at the time. Uh, and we had you know, currency stability globally. We had this massive globalization trend where increased trade and cooperation and capital flows defined the, 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 the late 
call it a call it a 50 to 70 year period, this this golden age where everyone was on the gold standard. They said, you know, we don't have to ship our gold back and forth to each other if we get out of balance in terms of our current account deficits and surpluses. We could just make paper entries. So that was the agreement in 22. And this is where I think it's important to see legacy as an accumulation of decisions that are made. Little decisions accrue to big things later on. So how do we get at $32 trillion? It, it wasn't 10 trillion at a time. It was a dollar at a time. When you think of virtue, when you think of what you want for your family, when you think about the little things that go off the rails, it really is, is, is important to consider that the, the value of small things and the decisions we make. That's where I categorize 1922 as the beginning point of coming off the rails from a, from a monetary standpoint. 1932, yes. we were, of course, in the Great Depression. 1932 was the next significant date on that timeline. And it's when we saw the U.S. monetary authorities create a two-tiered system. On the one hand, we didn't want to upset our foreign creditors. So we maintained gold as a part of our monetary system. And anything we owed, we would make payment just as had been agreed in gold ounces. But on the other hand, domestically, we had this problem. Not enough money in the banking system, liquidity crisis, a run on the banks, panic in the financial markets. And the conclusion was, well, we just need to be able to put more money into the system add liquidity and these problems will go away. Oops, you can't do that if you're on the gold standard because you've got a finite amount of, of money. So they disconnected the US dollar from gold there in 33, made it illegal for individual citizens to own gold. There was a few exceptions to that. If you were a dentist or if you had a religious relic or something like that, there was a few carve outs. But the average person could no longer hold gold. That allowed them to inflate the value of the US dollar on a domestic basis while still maintaining legitimate legitimacy internationally, that was the two-tier system. Then of course in 44, fast forward to the, the end of the war and we reorient the, the global financial system and monetary system towards the US dollar, away from the pound sterling and we become the heir apparent for the world monetary system. We've maintained that status not on the same basis as the Bretton Woods Agreement, because the Bretton Woods Agreement was was completely scrapped uh, there in, in 1971, when Nixon closed the gold window and basically said, if you are a friend of America, those were actual words that he used in a letter to the French, you will stop taking our gold ounces and you will start taking our greenbacks as payment for debt. <laughs> and the French said, thank you, we respect that opinion, send us our ounces. <laughs> That's why he was forced to, I mean, and they took they took tens of thousands of tons that we, we had so much gold that was flowing out of this country in that period of time. And frankly, there's an, an, an interesting echo. There's an interesting, um, you know, rhyme, if you will, from that period to this period. We had the Johnson administration, the guns and butter policies of the Johnson administration, excess from a fiscal standpoint, unsustainable debts to pay and inflation beginning to loom large in the minds of investors. It had not been there for some time. And then in the late 60s, early 70s, it's very much on people's minds. And sure enough, we end up with inflation all throughout the 70s and early 80s. And I think if you look at our monetary backdrop today and our fiscal backdrop today, there is a huge similarity. But the difference is we do not have a system that has gold as a reference point in its monetary system any longer. 
It is an entirely what they call fiat system where every currency around the world is based on promises and the legitimacy of the PhDs that are running those central banks. So we've gone from a gold standard to a PhD standard. We have so much more faith in man and I think that could end up being problematic for us. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Especially as you reminded us that the heart of man is desperately wicked. Uh, depravity is a uh, universal problem and it's a degenerative problem. It doesn't get better over time. It gets worse and worse. And apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith alone, uh, you know, you, mankind is, is going to be inclined toward evil. And so some of these powerful people are uh, doing some evil things. I loved your quote that legacy is a, a an accumulation, I think you said, of little uh, decisions. Let me see, I wrote it down. Yeah, an accumulation of little decisions. It reminds me of a quote that I give in my latest book, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, from uh, from uh, Ernest Hemingway's 1926 novel, The Sun Also Rises, when Mike Campbell, a character in that book, was asked about his money problems. They, they asked him, how did you go bankrupt? And he responded two ways, first gradually and then suddenly. And that's uh, kind of the way it works, right? Uh, so, uh, right. so yeah, so uh, getting back to kind of the, the economy of it all, another uh, sort of phrase that I've heard, I'd love to have you validate that I'm, that it's roughly correct in light of these dates that you've just given us. But somewhere around 1980, I'm, I'm told we be, we went from being the world's largest creditor nation to being the world's largest debtor nation. Can you uh, can you comment on that and the implications of it? Sure. It was George Washington, Jimmy Carter, that stretch of time where we really didn't have that much in debt and, you know, took that long to get to about a trillion dollars in debt. Then, you know, unfortunately, under the, the Reagan administration, we jumped from one very quickly to two trillion. We doubled the debt in a short period of time. And between Star Wars and the funding of the Cold War in competition with the Russians, I think the decision was made that we could outspend them and we had the latitude to go into debt and they did not. And, and so regardless of what you think about going into debt, there was a strategy being pursued and it did work. It did work. Again, we, we may linger with the cost to pay for it to this day, and we may have moved from, again, capitalism to creditism, dependent on debt growth for economic growth. That's a sorry state of affairs, which we have inherited. But <laughs> the Cold War ended because the Russians were bankrupt. They couldn't spend like we could. We had a little bit more balance sheet latitude. And yeah. some yeah, might argue right. that, yeah, some might argue that, you know, communism itself was a bankrupt system that was going to die anyway. But certainly the um, the Cold War kind of hastened their demise, you might say, uh, in that sense. Um, of course, that's another whole discussion, which is beyond the scope of our discussion, but the real truth behind uh, the Cold War and, and, and whether communism did in fact die or just, you know, moved into the mountains and went underground. But in any event, for, for the economic uh, you know, situation, how, how knowing that we are $32 trillion in debt, um, what are the implications of that for us as a nation? Does that put us at a position of weakness globally? It seems like it would. Well, so just run some of these numbers, if you will. Um, before COVID, you know, you had tax revenue. This is the government collecting revenue from businesses and individuals like you and I. Um, the tax revenue which they were bringing in compared to the interest component on the national debt was about 6%. So interest, 6% of the total revenue. 
Um, this year, we're on track for 19% of total revenue. Right? So, so we're because interest rates are coming up and debt levels are increasing at the same time, the percentage of total revenue that the government has just to pay interest, this is not principal, this is not paying for Medicare and Medicaid, this is not paying for the military or anything else that government is supposed to pay for. But we went from a very small line item to something that's now three times that. We're on track for 19, I think it was 19.6 or 19.3, I forget what the math was, um, of this year's revenue will go to interest. Well, what does that look like if the debt continues to grow and interest rates don't moderate and go down? You're talking about the forcing of uh, government to increase taxes, which is a huge burden on households, who many of which are already having a hard time pay paying bills. So how do you pay bills between here and 2032 if your taxes go up 10, 15, 20%? and inflation is continuing to linger, maybe even go higher. Like this is where you begin to see a breakdown in the social fabric. There's implications within society and tensions that build within policy circles and certainly in, 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 in politics when people can't pay the bills. This is, this is why you, you look at something as, as silly as the, as the price of a cucumber or tomato or you know, whatever you buy at the grocery store, and this is probably the biggest point of tension for households. Yeah. So, you know, someone has said when people lose everything, they lose it. So I think that is the ultimate implication is at some point it it just becomes uh, a survival issue of, you know, being able to feed your family. But you talked about the interest. So almost 20 percent, at least if projections hold, of our revenue this year will go to pay <clears throat> To pay just the interest on the national debt? Is that what you're saying? That's right. And yeah, that's so right. who gets that interest? Is that the Federal Reserve? <laughs> is that who's making them? Who, do, who Who's the United States of America paying that interest to? Yeah. So it, it depends on who has given us the money on loan. And, and a lot of that money has come from foreign creditors. China and Japan are the two largest creditors. We've got Middle East countries who for a long time, you know, we would buy oil, from them, they would take our dollars, and instead of converting those dollars to their own currency, they would just take those dollars and recycle them into U.S. Treasury debt. So they would be giving us our money back, and then we would owe them interest on the money. So the interest is going to our creditors, um, in, in, in no particular order, uh, it would be China, Japan, and in the Middle East as our largest as our as our largest um, creditors. And so uh, I want to come back to that in, in just a moment uh, in terms of the implications of that. And could could any of these creditors call in the debt? But help me understand uh, in terms of the Federal Reserve, because obviously I think most of our listeners anyway know that, you know, the the, the dollars that we use are note, uh, their debt notes, you know, their Federal Reserve notes. Um, so the privately owned Federal Reserve, when we when we when they print money, you know the the qualitative easing. Um, we are not getting those that money at no charge, right? Aren't we paying to some, in some mechanism? And I, I'm sorry that I'm so naive to all this subject that I'm probably not using the right terminology. But aren't we somehow beholden to the Federal Reserve? Well, I mean, it's it's basically a delegated process. Congress was supposed to be the creators of money, and that that goes back to the whole Jekyll Island conversation and how we ended up with a third party 
um, privately owned, no longer directly connected, indirectly connected, yes, but but not directly connected in terms of ownership to the U.S. government, and they have the ability to create um, to create money out of nothing. The, the there is a remit which is made at the end of the year of of Federal Reserve profits that go back to the Treasury. So there is a case to be made that you know the the relationship is fairly tight. It's it's a quasi government entity, although it's not directly a government entity. And not every dollar that's generated in profit by the Federal Reserve gets to be kept by the Federal Reserve. Um, so the you know I I don't think of it as a healthy relationship i would think think it's either incestuous or um <laughs> what parasitic of in some form or yeah, fashion. So that's a good way to put it quasi government um I, I think that's a term that i've been kind of searching for to describe it but but in any event still the owners of the of the central bank in, in this case the federal reserve you know they do benefit right it's not like yeah, they're, yeah. They're, I, I think one of the one of the things you mentioned, which is worth coming back around to, is you know what happens if the, the nature of relationship changes with our creditors, and I think the Japanese um, are, are a unique case in point. The Chinese represent a, a real risk to us, and in the Middle East, we haven't done a very good job of maintaining those relationships, particularly as we've become more energy independent through the shale boom. Um, we no longer need Middle East oil, and we really have disrespected them in many ways. So instead of being diplomatically at the front edge of the seat, we've put our feet up on the desk and, mm -hmm. and tended to thumb our nose at everybody, including uh, Mohammed bin Salman and, 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 and the folks at Saudi Aramco. So we had a relationship with them that was fairly healthy, functional, and they were our primary creditors, but we still need them. We still need them. Loss. Bear with me just a moment. Market data connection reestablished. Um, Market data connection lost. Hold on a second. Market data I've connection reestablished. Application. My apologies. Oh no worries. It's going to keep on barking. Happens to me all the time. I try to try to remember to turn off everything, and but sure enough, I get some uh, some notice or something. But no worries. We're pretty informal around here. It's one of our trading programs, and it it, it speaks to me in a British accent, and it, 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 <laughs> I need to make that go away. Yeah. Um, so th these creditors, they have offered us a line of credit. They're funding our debt needs, right? But if they don't fund our debt needs, then it then it becomes really an, an issue. Like we 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 need to borrow money, but who's going to lend it to us? And, and what's really interesting here in 2023 is that we are seeing a surge in needs for borrowing, and there's not a lot of market appetite for it, <laughs> which puts a natural pressure on interest rates to go higher, right? If, if, and this is just basic supply and demand. If there's a huge amount of demand for that debt, then interest rates will stay relatively low. But if there's not a lot of demand for that debt, then what you compensate someone in terms of an interest payment on that debt is going to have to go higher. But this is the problem. As interest rates go higher, you're talking about all kinds of problems within the banking system, frailties within the real estate markets, and unhinging of the stock market. So we come back to this, this, this relationship between the economy and the financial markets. And if we see very much of an uptick in interest rates from these levels, you're talking about 
I mean, we've, we're already seeing pressure in the commercial real estate market, but now you, you would see it translate directly into residential housing, um, multifamily housing, and a whole host of other places. So real estate is something that is, is going to be, I think, under more and more pressure over the next few years as interest rates normalize. A lot of economists think that they need to normalize lower. Well, that was never normal. I mean, we, we got to interest rates, which were the lowest we'd seen literally in 5,000 years. And that's what economists hope we get back to, is that kind of normal. Well, it never was normal. It was completely abnormal. We are more likely to spend the next 30 to 40 years with interest rates creeping higher. And when that happens, it reve reveals the frailties within the financial markets. Now we come back to valuations of stocks valuations of real estate, bond pricing, all of these things have significant downside as interest rates rise, right? Yeah. So let's talk about interest rates for a second, because I've heard it. I've heard some commentators talk about it's a mistake to, to evaluate and comment on today's interest rates. So like, what's a, what's a 30 year fixed right now? Is it up to seven? Generally, right, seven, yeah. Yeah. So it's an, it, they would say, I've heard some people say it's really not, a, it's, it's a mistake to think of today's rates relative to say what it was in the late seventies, you know, 18, 19, even 20%. And, and because that might, you know, fool you into this sense of, well, it's not that bad. Rather, they say, look at it in terms of what it was just two years ago. I know when, when, when my family and I bought, we were able to get three and a quarter percent. Um, you know, so in just a couple of years, it's doubled. So is that, is that probably the better perspective on kind of the, the frailty of the, the system? It is, but I wouldn't neglect the 70s and 80s numbers either, because, you know, while I don't think we'll get to those numbers, it is important to remember that as rates go higher, it's like a, a seesaw on a child's playground. As rates go higher, on the other end of the seesaw is the value of the real estate, and it goes the opposite direction. So low rates equals high prices, high rates equals low prices. And that's not something that most households are prepared for, is taking a major hit with their largest asset. But I think that is a reasonable trajectory over the next 10, 15, 20 years, is to see pressure in rates and pressure, downside pressure on pricing. So if you bought in when the rates were low, you probably overpaid. And uh, and and if your need to sell, then you're going to have a tough time getting your equity out. But if you're planning to stay in the home, you know, indefinitely or forever, then it's probably not that big of a of a deal, right? I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. But what's happening is as, as rates have come up, people are not moving like they used to. You know, if if I sell my house today, I'm similarly in about a three and a quarter fixed 30 year number. And, and if I move, I automatically jump my mortgage rate, assuming that I buy a comparable house, I jump my mortgage rate by 60 to 70%. Mm. My, 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 my total mortgage obligation on a monthly basis, yeah. cash flow wise, it'll, it'll cost me 60, 70, maybe even 80%. I did the math a month ago. It, it may have changed, but that that's, that's consequential. And it means, yeah, maybe I should sell my house right now. I can't. What am I going to replace it with? That's right. Yeah, that's the that's the big, you know, conundrum is that people wanted to capitalize on the the you know, the market, but it uh, there was a very narrow window window there. So so to kind of um uh summarize what what you've talked about so far, uh and I'm still going to pin you down on a on a projection here. Um 
economically with with the debt and all of the markers that you're talking about um you know the, the consumer is probably in for some tough times right i mean we're going to we're going to see inflation we're going to see higher rates um but going back to the other side of the coin that you talked about just the markets in general are we are we headed towards some type of a fundamental end of sort of the world as we know it financially collapse yeah so let's let's talk about that because i think there is a difference between the 0809 period and the current period um Yes, I think we're coming up to um, an incredibly pressured period of time where we could see the financial markets collapse, where we could see the Dow half its current value, the S&P trade 2000 from its current 42, 4300, um, NASDAQ trade 60% off of its peak numbers, even 70% lower. Um, th these are the, but it's, it, we're getting there in a different way. 08 and 09, you know, the markets were unhealthy because credit had flowed to the wrong places. When when too much credit is made available, that that allows for a misallocation of capital. What 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 some people would call mal investment, bad investment. And and that's what happened when credit was created on the other side of the dot-com boom and bust. The government decided we're going to gin up the economy. We're going to try to make things better. And as they created a massive amount of credit, it focused its its path into the mortgage-backed securities market and into the U.S. real estate market. So through 2005, 6, and 7, we saw this massive bubble in U.S. real estate and particularly in mortgages, mortgage-backed securities that's where the pain was. The reason why it went global and became the global financial crisis is because people were buying mortgages on the basis that they paid more in interest, but were implicitly guaranteed by the US government. So they're like, look, we can we can get 50% more income and we're not taking any more risk. We'll hmm. take some of that, please. So it got yeah. shoved into portfolios all over the world. And then when people sniffed and found that, oh, this stuff stinks and it's toxic waste, it's in every portfolio. It's all over the world. It's in British banks. It's in in European uh, banks. It's it's in pension funds. And and all of a sudden, the rot <laughs> is problematic for everybody. This time, it's different in the sense that the flow of credit has not been into mortgage-backed securities, where you have had a misallocation of capital, is in government debt. And this is far more dangerous than 2008 and 2009 because you're talking about the credibility of your of, of, the, of the entities that control the monetary systems of the world. We're talking about the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, the People's Bank of China, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of Canada, the Bank of Australia. These organizations have made significant, significant mistakes, strategic mistakes. And, 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 and the debt problems, the credit problems are not this time in a narrow focused mortgage sector. They are ubiquitous. They are everywhere because treasuries are everywhere. The bubble that is in the process of bursting is a government bond bubble, which has implications for how people perceive currencies, whether it's the US dollar, the yen, the RMB, the renminbi, uh, the euro, pound sterling. And, and this is why I think this could actually be more, far more significant than 08 and 09. 
we're getting there in a different way. It's not the same cause and effect. They are loosely related because you're dealing with excess credit, driving a bubble dynamic. And ultimately when that bubble comes undone, there are implications. So we, we go back to this notion that the financial markets are distinct from the economy. When you look at the financial markets, you need to know what's in play in terms of derivatives, who's speculating and with whose money. And, and you need to know how much malinvestment has occurred because it's, it's where you have the greatest malinvestment, bad investment, that you tend to see the greatest damage, right? So this is, this is, this is I think, really important because you know, what I think on a best case scenario we're talking about is a 25-year period of, of, of financial market and economic headwinds where we just deal with subpar growth and investors are earning one to two percent a year on average for a 15 or 20 year period, right? So that that old seven percent or 10 percent on your money or whatever you think you are going to need and whatever you hope you get for retirement, forget about it. Forget about it. And that's best no. case. So what's worst case though? Then then worst case scenario is is prices of real estate, stocks, and bonds go from extreme bubble highs to extreme bear market lows. And this is where I think it's it's particularly intriguing. If I have my investment cap on, you, know, you go back to the Rothschilds, you mentioned them earlier. Meyer Amschel said, buy, buy when there's blood in the streets and sell too soon. <laughs> buy when there's blood in the streets assumes that you have liquidity. You know, and in our in our managed accounts, we're currently sitting on 50% cash and a good amount of gold and silver bullion because we don't like the valuations in the US stock market we don't see that what you can buy today is going to give you the opportunity to make money tomorrow. But with a discount in those values comes a lower cost basis for those assets and the probability of high rates of return over a long period of time. It just really matters, JB, what you pay for an asset. You overpay, you're never going to make any money on that investment. You underpay, you get something at a bargain basement price, your odds of succeeding on that investment are, are great. So patience is important right here and right now. Increasing your cash allocations, moving them to US treasuries, short-term, 90-day treasuries, important right here, right now. Fortifying a portfolio with physical metals, important right here, right now. Now, these are things that we've done for 50 years for folks and, and can certainly help if your listeners want to, to, to reach out to us, we can do that. But I think it's really important that they understand the context that we are not going back to normal interest rates run in long-term cycles of 30 to 40 years. Interest rates have been coming down from 1982 to just a few years ago. We've gone a 40-year cycle of declining interest rates. We don't get to hug the, the bottom forever. That's never, interest rates move up for 10, 20, 30, 40 years at a time, and then they move the opposite direction for another. Actually, in the US, in the US market, it's a 22-year uh, 22 years is the shortest interest rate trend in, 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 in any of those cycles. And the average is closer to 40. The average, I think it was 36 is, is about the average. So we're talking to David McIlvaney. Um, he is the CEO of McIlvaney Financial Companies, McIlvaney Wealth Management. Um, McIlvaney.com is the website, M-C-A-L-V-A-N-Y, McIlvaney.com. Uh, so a few times you've kind of, as as you should, as a expert uh, investment advisor, uh, talked in terms of 20 years this, 25 years that, 40 years this. Uh, some of us feel like 
in light of the uh, you know the balloon that you've talked about and the precarious nature of the U.S. government, coupled with my research, which tells me that the the ones that are really pulling the strings behind world control have been vying to collapse America for some time. My research tells me, you know, they're they think anyway they're knocking on the door of the of the end game. They 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 really want to see America collapse and be forced into signing on to some type of global governance. Now, of course, I, I could be wrong. I'm not a sensationalist or a date setter. I'm just saying that's what they're writing about in their own uh, research. I have a chapter in my latest book that, that talks about the Luciferian timeline where they're telegraphing what they hope to accomplish. Now, we believe God is the ultimate arbiter of the timetable, and and uh, certainly his fingerprints are all, all over this uh, country, but you know, so are uh, Satan's co-conspirators. I mean, they, they're all over this c- country too. So, uh, I guess what I'm asking is, um, do you envision a scenario, and again, I'm asking you for a hypothetical, so I, I appreciate that that may not be a box you're wanting to put yourself in, but is there some scenario where we do see a cataclysmic collapse in America as we know it is no more, no longer sovereign over its own financial system? Well, I mean, anything's possible, and, and particularly war is one of those things that that can change a landscape uh, mm-hmm. in a dramatic way, yeah, and, and on a time frame that that would otherwise um, be be unreasonable. Um, and and so I think it's been said, crisis compresses time, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's fair to say. On a normal time cycle, no, I I don't I don't think that's a concern, but. We're, we're talking about a series of opportunities for crisis over the next three to five to 10 years that relate not only to the economy, as we've talked about, financial markets, as as we've begun to talk about, but also as it relates to international relations, global um, you know, cooperation. The, the, we're, we're at a very precarious point in, in U.S., and global history, and and I don't know that that we have God fearing leadership that is making decisions with with a with a winsome and and thoughtful and and, and prayerful mindset. I I think this is ad hoc, and and we've got power plays all over the place, and you know we come back to human nature being on display. I see more and more selfishness, greed. What can I do for me, myself, and I? That, that's what I see back in DC. And I, hopefully that's not an entirely cynical, cynical comment. But for me, when I look at the markets, there's two time cycles to keep in mind. Short term, which which what in our business we view as a, a short cycle, or, or we could just call it cyclical, short-term trends, which are cyclical trends, and, and then longer-term secular trends. So so you can have little short-term trends in the larger context of these larger secular trends. What we've tried to shape today is the view to the secular, to the long-term trend. Because when credit dynamics shift, when inflation dynamics shift, these are things that shift for long periods of time. Does that mean that the stock market collapses tomorrow? No, we may have some cycles, some short-term cyclical moves, which, which are counter to that. We have that in the stock market right now. How is it the stock market's doing so well? Well, I think this is a short-term aberration in a longer-term secular trend of, of significant headwinds and pressure and ultimately significant decline within equities, within bonds, within real estate. 
Yeah, is it, <clears throat> this is the loaded question, but is the stock market controlled? Is it rigged? Is it, is, are there powers that be in, in dark smoke filled rooms somewhere that manipulating it so that what we view as organic uh, is really all uh, intentional? Yes and no. Um, you know, th this is where uh, as a, as a, as a stock market operator, I can look on a daily basis. And if you're looking at options volumes and the futures markets where you have um, a little extra oomph, it's, it, you know, you can see the footprints of manipulation. Hmm. You can see them, but they only work for short periods of time. So if I say, is the stock market controlled? I would say, no, ultimately there is a process of price discovery that all investors are involved in. And that trumps any short-term manipulation. But that is not to say that there isn't manipulation. There certainly is. And in the short run, you can see it. There's, there is, there is footprints everywhere. Yeah. So we've got lots of examples of that. But so what you're saying is that, you know, you've got insider trading and you've got like any system that's controlled by human beings, as we've said several times on the program today, you've got bad actors that, that can do bad things. And so you're going to have, you know, negative influencers doing things for nefarious means. But you're saying, if I'm understanding you right, the system as a whole is really so large that it's it's not like there's some guy in a room somewhere pushing buttons and monolithically making things happen. That's right. Okay. That's right. Um, let's talk about uh, gold and silver. That's obviously, you know, your one of your many fields of expertise um, at McIlvaney. Um you know, I've often said, and I'd be interested in your take on this. I, I'm I'm going to assume that you might nuance it more than than I would, and that's fine. I, I like to give our listeners as much information as they can from good, reputable sources. But I've often followed the um, the uh, paradigm: if you can't touch it, you don't own it. And my wife and I, kind of, as we woke up 17 years ago to the world as we now realize it exists, you know, through a biblical lens, of course, but understanding that so much of what we see is not reality, that there's, it's, it's never about what it's about. Um, what would you say to that sort of a credo? If you can't touch it, you don't own it. And and by that, I mean, if, it, if your investment is in dashes and dots on a server somewhere, it's inherently at risk as opposed to being in a safe in your basement, you know? Yeah. Well, I, th I think there's some truth to that. I think there is a, a cultural bias in that respect in, in the sense that boomers would certainly fit the mold of, if it's not in my hot little hand, it doesn't exist. And then you, you move towards a thoroughly digital native um, generation and, and they don't want to be bothered with stuff. So the only thing they want is an equity account online or a gold position that they can they can access and buy and sell, you know, using using an app. They certainly don't want to take delivery. So the, I think there is a spectrum of 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 people who require greater personal control or allow for um, you know other bona fides to to to, to take to take priority. Uh, the convenience factors, the cost factors, the safety factors, things like that may be a priority to the generation that says, hey, I don't mind a digital interface as long as I know the physical metal is still there. So for instance, we we have one program. I mean, we've been delivering gold to people and using gold for IRAs. That's probably a, a, the biggest part of our business is, is folks taking their retirement accounts and, and having some of that those funds put in, in physical gold. Well, the IRS doesn't allow you to take delivery of it. 
So it sits in a bank vault, East Coast or somewhere else in the United States, where um, it is held for you. It's physically there. When you take required minimum distributions, you can have the physical metal. You own it. It's sitting there. You can have it shipped to you. So there are some limitations if you're talking about how you're going to fund a purchase of metals. Um, we have another program called Vaulted. Vaulted.com or go to the App Store and look at Vaulted. It's a cooperation with um, the Royal Canadian Mint and with HSBC. And we can store and purchase physical gold or silver um, and do it in a very cost-effective way. Royal Canadian Mint's a great provider. We're, we're dealing with a facility in Ottawa that's that's been responsible for the Queen's gold uh, going back to 1908. So, so the long history of of that HSBC is 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 our our silver bar provider in London. Um, uh, this is this is one of the largest uh, silver institutions in the world, and we have a great relationship with them. But having said that, we still have people that would say, nope, no, thank you. I would prefer that you send me you know, a box of silver eagles. I would rather have them in my home safe. We can handle everything. We've been handling those logistics, and we've helped innovate and create new ways of doing things with integrity for 51 years. So I would say that if someone is interested or concerned about inflation, if someone is concerned about the stability of their banks and having too much as a cash balance at one or two or three banks, then do something about it. First thing you can do, if you call our office or, or go online to McIlvaney.com, we'll give you a free bank rating and, and you can know on an A through F scale where your bank is. We pay thousands of dollars a year to get that information. They're happy to share it with your listeners if if they're interested in 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 knowing. Well, how does are my savings safe? You know, is that all, bank, all all banks? Like even if it's a small local bank, they would be they would show any, up on your rating system. Yep. Wow, banks, credit unions, we've got them covered. So you know, know what risks you're taking, and then start mitigating those risks. You have an inflation risk. You do have a banking sector risk. You've got a stock market risk, which can be mitigated in large part just by shrinking back your market exposure and having a little bit more cash. But these are these are conversations that we, we have with folks day in and day out. Help strategize risk and reward. Wall Street tends to focus on reward only and neglect risk. And sometimes they get taken up short and, and it's, it's problematic. Then you're just stuck playing the patience game. You know, you go through another bear market. You hear it from your broker all the time. Yeah, it's okay. It'll come back. You know, you can't time these things. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, you can time a lot of things. When you see prices that are absolutely stark raving nuts and you just say, okay, well, this is the new normal. I guess I better get used to stark raving nuts prices. No, that's when you sell too soon. Remember Meyer Amschel Rothschild? Buy when there's blood in the streets, which means you have cash and gold, liquidity sources to fund purchases. Buy when there's blood in the streets and sell too soon. If things are getting really expensive, let someone else own them, right? Yeah. It, it, this is where I, I do think people don't understand just how basic investing is. So, so when you say move some of your investments into the dollar, how how help me understand how given what we talked about earlier in the program, the sort of what's what I perceived or understood you to be saying as the precarious nature of the US dollar with our debt and all of that. How is that not a risk then if you if you move some of your stocks and other things into the dollar? 
Yeah, it, it is a risk. You're just saying that of the risks that I'm willing to take, okay. this is a reasonable risk. And, and so when you're dealing with stock market risk, you're talking about fast burn issues. You're mm -hmm. talking about a no fuse issue, as in light it and boom, it's gone. The dollar is more of a, a, a slow burn issue. Yes, it's an issue. Yes, it's a risk. But would I rather take my chances with inflation of a three to five to even 10% rate versus a cataclysmic 50% drop in, in stock values? Which we've seen. You know, I, I know I'll, a lot I'll, of people- I'll take dollar risk any day. Yeah, no question. Yeah, And we've oh, seen and then, the volatility. Then, Some people lost a lot of their- portfolio that they depend on in retirement uh, in the most recent uh, you know, uh, hiccup that we had. Yeah. And, and of course, one of the ways that you balance out your dollar risk is by creating sort of a barbell approach. On the one hand, you may have US dollars. On the other hand, you have sufficient ounces so that any devaluation of the dollar is offset by gains in your ounces to where you're, you're basically maintaining the wealth that you've created through time and, and, and offsetting it. You're creating your own hedge. Both yeah, so, so let's talk about you know what you said about uh, precious metals. Obviously, a, a, a company like McIlvany that's you know has a, a Christian worldview and is uh, has integrity, as you said, uh, would not pose as much of a risk in terms of investing in metals where you just have a certificate and it's held somewhere. Um, but uh, what can you say to those who are? are looking at investing, uh, what kind of caution can you give them about be very careful before investing in a, you know, with a company that is giving you a certificate because aren't, isn't it true that there are a lot of, you know, shysters out there that are claiming to sell you a certificate, but if you, the time comes when you want to draw down on that, you may find there's nothing there is, or am I being too sensational? I don't think you're being sensational enough, frankly, because it's an unregulated space. And, and if you don't have some sort of a moral compass governing how you operate as a business, we, we default to selfishness, greed, and what can I do for me, myself, and I? And that is the problem with the precious metals industry is, is you've got folks who've discovered they can sell widgets and charge whatever they want for it. They can turn your 401k into a 201k overnight, charging egregious prices. Hmm. So we, we don't, we don't want to make a killing. We want to make a reasonable living and create long-term relationships with clients. I would tell you this, if you hear someone advertise on television or radio, understand that their budget for doing so is coming out of your scalp. It's coming out of your hide. Hmm. And I'm talking seven-figure commitments. Everyone you hear on radio and television is paying a million dollars or more a year so that that radio host or television host is saying exactly what they want to be want, want said. Hmm. And it comes out of your hide. Yeah, Our growth strategy is take care of people, honor them with integrity, service the account and the client, over a long period of time. And we grow as a second generation family business into the second, third, fourth generation of our clients, kids and grandkids. That's how, that's our growth strategy is take care of people. Yeah. Right? Their so, growth strategy is fleece as many as possible. Please be careful. It's an unregulated industry. And if you are not governed by the rules within or rules without, you better be governed by some sort of a moral compass within. Yeah. And again, you know, at McIlvaney, and I'm not I'm not necessarily, I do recommend you because I, I know your reputation and I followed your dad for, for years, but uh, I'm not 
you know, this isn't a paid commercial by any means. I'm just trying to give people information. Uh, I want to remind you that, as you said earlier, if you're of the mindset that you'd really rather hold it, you can handle that. You can buy yep. you know, precious metals from McIlvaney and they'll ship it to you. Uh, or, you know, you can buy it from them and then invest it. And especially just going back to something you said a moment ago uh, that I was not aware of. I, it sounded like there are certain types of investments in metals that by law, if you use an IRA or some other type of retirement fund, you're not able to actually hold it. You know, you have to have it not until you can take the minimum distribution, right? That's correct. You It has to be held by a trustee. And if you close that gap, we've had clients that have tried to do that. We've advised against it. And, you know, they're dealing with premature distributions, taxable events, and because they weren't reported adequately and on time, then penalties um, and and fines from from the IRS. So is the, is the gold and silver market manipulated like the stock market is? I'm sure it is. In the same exact way. In the short term, it can be moved. In the long run, you're dealing with basic supply and demand fundamentals, which go beyond a single party's interest. In the last year, central banks have decided they want gold and they want a lot of it. We've seen record purchases in 2022, and in the first half of 2023, it's still at a, at a very impressive clip. Central banks are looking at their $7 trillion in, in, in currency reserves, and they're saying to themselves, what the US did to Russia, we don't like. They had 300 billion in assets that just went up in smoke. The US government took it and will never give it back. Can we have everything in US dollars? The answer clearly in 2023 is a no. So, so we're seeing a shift amongst the global central bank community, you know, whereas a few years ago they might have said, oh, gold is a pet rock. Oh, gold is an it's an anachronistic. Who needs it? Um, but here we are. Here we are with central banks all over the world saying, wait a minute. It is an asset that is private, that is portable, that is a financial asset, but is not directly tied to the financial system, and as such, cannot be controlled by the people who are controlling the financial system. Keep that in mind, JB, because when you look at gold, you've got something that is connected to the financial system, but is not dependent on the financial system. It, it is a financial asset, but with its own autonomy. And I think this is one thing that is super important in the years ahead. When I think, and I'll refer you to one particular essay, Alan Greenspan, back in the 1970s, wrote an essay called Gold and Economic Freedom. And in it, he argues that our agency, our ability to make decisions for ourselves is contingent on being able to own gold. It's a fascinating article and ironic because ultimately he became sort of <laughs> a full-blown member of the creature from Jekyll Island, mm -hmm. right? But in his earlier and perhaps more idealistic age, you know, he's hanging out with Ayn Rand and, and, and you know, he's, he's very much involved in sort of libertarian ideas of freedom and autonomy and whatever else. In this essay, Golden Economic Freedom, he makes a very compelling case that your agency depends on having resources that no one else can control. Hmm. And I would say that is exactly what the central banks are doing today. They are saying our agency could be impinged upon if we don't have sufficient reserves in gold, as we have seen on display in 2022 with Russia and the US. So there's been a sea change in terms of demand dynamics from central banks. Now you start factoring in global economic instability and financial market frailties and investors move to gold as well, 
and you you discover how small a market is. That's the dynamic where you see price appreciation in gold and silver, and it comes back to supply and demand. Can it be manipulated this week, this month, this afternoon? Sure, but these massive thousands and thousands and thousands of tons of demand end up defining the market in the end. Long-term trend is very strong, very bullish for gold and silver. Yeah, and I know we're about out of time and I wanna respect your time here, but, um, and I don't, uh, you know, our listeners are listening to this on an audio podcast, but uh, David and I are, can see each other because we're recording this by video just to make for a better conversation. And I, and looking in your background, I don't see a crystal ball on your desk. But uh, the million dollar question is from a lot of people: Where do you see gold and silver uh, going? Are we going to see, in the long term, a, a massive increase? So, and again, we don't have a crystal ball, but we we can learn some things from the past, and 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 perhaps that informs or gives us a little bit more of an informed opinion about the future. Um, what we saw with gold in the nineteen seventies and eighties is that from a from an from from an economic standpoint, if you adjusted the price for inflation, it began the period at thirty five dollars an ounce. It moved to about four hundred dollars an ounce. And that's where it belonged, it was right around $400 an ounce. Adjusting for all the inflation of the 1970s, it should have been 400 bucks an ounce. Lo and behold, it trades to 875, so about twice its inflation adjusted price. No different than where oil traded in, in the 2007, 8, 9 timeframe, where it got to about $140 a barrel, twice its inflation adjusted price. Got ahead of itself. Where does it come back to? A lower level. Where did gold spend the better part of a decade and a half after that run to 875? Right around $400 an ounce. The current inflation adjusted price is roughly $2,800. So you're below it today. And I think you've got upside to roughly two times the inflation adjusted price, $5,800, $6,000 an ounce. Will it stay there? Absolutely not. Not economically justifiable, but that's a spike move. And I think ultimately we think in terms of $2,500 to $3,000 gold as sort of the new plateau, that's what our grandkids will think. Why doesn't gold ever do anything? <laughs> it adjusted, it had its generational move higher and is and is now sort of plateaued in that $2,500 uh, to 2,800 range. And silver, same idea. Yeah, silver is a, silver's a different animal than gold. It's, it's worth considering, um, but the the ratio between the two metals is something that we keep track of. And this is one of the ways, ways that we add extra value in a client relationship, because there's actually some trading which can be, got, be done to maximize exposure to one metal versus the other. Today, the gold-silver ratio, that is the number of ounces of silver that it takes to buy one ounce of gold is right around 80 to one. 80 ounces of silver have the same monetary value as one ounce of gold. That'll dip to as low as 30. And so there's a reason sometimes to be heavier gold in a portfolio or heavier silver. Today, you could argue for a heavier silver position, but with a clear strategy as to when and how to make the move in the direction of gold to maximize that growth in ounces. It's what we call compounding ounces. Hmm. So when when if, if I just use as a, as a metric that readjusted price, let's say $2,800 gold, and assume a high value. So I'm not going to pick the high value for gold, but 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 the new high, the, the new modest value, 2,800. After it's had a spike high and has come back down, 2,800 at a 30 to one ratio would put silver at 93 bucks an ounce. 
just under $100 an ounce. Yeah. And both of those would be obviously all-time highs if it goes up to right. that 5800 6000 and and then comes back down levels off uh but uh but so you you do obviously I mean I've said many times the biblical word for money in the New Testament Greek is argon it's the word silver. I mean it's it's an uh, limited in supply. It's made by God. It's not made by man out of thin air. Uh, so, I, you know, we're certainly big believers in it, but I, I, I'm looking at it from more of a sort of a preparedness, tangible, biblical concept. And I don't, I know very little about investment, but uh, what I hear you saying is, uh, yeah, gold and silver, per, good place to put your money. The greatest periods of financial stability for the United States and the world have been when we were on a gold standard. We don't have that option today, but families can put themselves on their own gold standard hmm. by looking and figuring out how many ounces it makes sense to own to balance their market exposures. Is it the only thing you should own? Absolutely not. Real estate makes sense. Stocks and bonds make sense. Um, you know, Cash does make sense. There are ways to balance a portfolio. Gold is a part of that balance. And I think it's even more important in the context of a system, which again, moved from, if you want to call it God's standard, the gold standard, we've moved to the PhD standard. Mm -hmm. And we have faith and confidence that the 600 PhDs, 600 of them at the Federal Reserve are going to help us navigate towards a bright future. So far, the Federal Reserve since 1913 has done a pretty poor job of that. 97% loss of the purchasing power of the dollar and their singular mandate for many years was just dollar stability, right? Yeah. This is this is absolutely crazy. Should we prioritize a gold holding within a portfolio? I think we should. Um but again, I come back to this word value, right? We talked about stocks earlier, real estate earlier. You you can always as you're getting educated on a particular asset class, you've got to understand where it's been, where it's going, where it is today in light of that context. So that the decision that you're making is not a fear-based decision of, oh, the world's coming to an end. I better own some more of that stuff. It always has to be done in light of what the value is. It's one of the reasons why I'd say, yeah, silver is a great value today. At 80 to 1, I like it. With silver with gold under 2,000 an ounce and in an 80 to 1 ratio, silver is compelling. It fits the value metrics perfectly. Are there other assets that, that, that are worthy of attention? Sure. But when you ask the question of, am I paying too much for this or too little? And you get into the mindset, it insulates you from, from sort of that fear of missing out. You know, the, the, the stampede of enthusiasm within a bull market where everybody's got to participate and they don't exactly know why, but we're just going to make a bunch of money. Bad idea. Bad yeah. idea. Be yeah, sober-minded, be reasonable, and understand what something is worth when you understand what something is worth you'll be able to make a wise decision about whether or not you're the person to buy it or yeah, there, uh, separately sell it. Absolutely. There's a biblical principle for that, and that's Proverbs 21.5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. So yeah, you don't want to just uh, jump on the bandwagon or rush out and make snap decisions without really thinking it through. And uh, and that's where, you know, McIlvaney comes in. And uh, David, boy, I, I know I took more time than I promised. Thank you for being gracious because I know you're busy, but uh, I, I hope we can have you back on again. I feel like there's a lot of ground that personally I'd benefit from, and I think our listeners are going to benefit from uh, kind of sitting in on the conversation. 
Well, JB, we love to educate. I've done our weekly podcast for 16 years. And, and if people are interested, they can link to that through our website as well, just McElvaney.com. You can look in the information sections. And, you know, if we can help clarify some of the context that people are making decisions, whether you utilize our services or not, I think we we love to educate, we love to inform, and anything that we can do down the line that that might be a value add from that standpoint, let us know. Um, I, I think their commentary would be a, a great service to, to to folks who are just trying to figure out. Again, it, it's kind of the question: if stewardship is important to you, um, how do we understand the times, and how do we wisely engage them? We have this niche within the financial markets, and it's only one area that deserves that same question. How do we understand the times and how do we we adequately engage them? Um, so this is not a, we don't get to check every box, but at least in the area of finance and economics, if we can help you understand the times, um, that would be our goal. Fantastic. Well, again, we've been talking to David McIlvaney uh, from McIlvaney Wealth Management. McIlvaney.com is the website. We'll link it up in the show notes to our uh, podcast. And uh, so, yeah, I'll definitely hold you to that. We'll circle back again here uh, and pick another time down the road and and uh, and just, uh, you know, dialogue some more. I know I've got some more questions, but thanks so much uh, for being with us, David. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. And to our listeners, thanks for joining in. Looking forward to a great weekend. If you're in the Denver metro area, come out and see us at Plum Creek Chapel on Sunday. We have services at 8.30 and 10 o'clock. We live stream the message at the 10 o'clock service at notbyworks. Uh, .org. Uh, but again, hopefully this was helpful to you. Uh, you know, don't dismay. We know that even though there's, you know, kind of a lot of negative outlook out there, certainly the stage is being set for, you know, some 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 bad things coming on the pike. We know who holds the future and greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. If you don't know the Lord, let me encourage you. Uh, trust in Jesus Christ today as the only one who can forgive sin and give you the gift of eternal life. Until next time, have a great weekend.